Welcome to the Hot Topic Bold Talk Podcast. Dr. Jacqueline is opening a forum for us to discuss opinions on the topics currently trending today. She's also going to share her experience with unique and diverse books that will encourage us all to think differently about the world and change our lives for the better. Together, we cover hot topics and get into the nitty gritty of how they affect our lives. All in the friendly and engaging tone so that you feel comfortable listening, even if it's not your favorite topic. This podcast is the perfect blend of knowledge and fun. We discuss everything and anything that matters today. Don't settle for the same old stuff. Get in on the conversation. Hello, my name is Dr. Jacqueline and I'm from DTP Leadership Group. And this is Podcast 40. Aren't you tired of all the mega Republicans dominating the media and thwarting bipartisan actions? And here's what you're going to hear in this podcast. Comprehend how Democrats and Republicans work together in the past, and occasionally they even work together today. After looking at the sad and painful actions that have been taken related to women and LGBTQ+, in podcast 38 and 39, I thought it was time to go back and remember what I talked about in podcast 36 and 37 about Louis DeJoy's actions as a Republican working with Democrats to reform the U.S. Postal Service. Now, this podcast 40 will discuss how Democrats and Republicans have worked together in the past and can today. I will present the history of bipartisanship and then give examples of actions taken by Congress and other entities to work together to achieve the best results for American people. So first, let me define what Wikipedia says is bipartisanship. Bipartisan political actions refer to cooperative efforts and collaboration between members of different political parties particularly in the context of government decision-making and legislation. It involves politicians from both major parties, typically Republicans and Democrats in the United States, working together to find common ground and achieve mutual beneficial outcomes for the nation. Now, let's look at the historical basis for bipartisanship, and it does come from Wikipedia as well. And American, uh, American politics is often settled into two-party system, which is as, as well as involving conflict between the two parties has also involved long periods of bipartisanship. James Madison argued in the Federalist Papers that the factionalism was a danger to democracy as it involved groups pushing their interests to the detriment of the national interest. The founders were largely nonpartisan and did not think that political parties would play a role in American politics. 
However, political parties have long been a major force in American politics, and the nation has all uh, kind of altered between periods of intense party rivalry, like we have now, and partisanship, as well as periods of bipartisanship. There have been periods of bipartisanship in American politics, such as when the Republicans supported legislation by Democratic President President Lyndon Baines Johnson in the early 1960s, and when Democrats worked with Republican President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. It is claimed that the nonpartisanship in foreign policy was a precursor to the concept of modern bipartisanship in U.S. politics. This was articulated in 1912 by President William Howard Taft, who stated that the fundamental foreign policy of the United States should be, could, should be raised above party differences. I think that's a very important comment. More recently, this was also shown in the case of President George H.W. Bush's administration, which began with an atmosphere of bipartisanship on foreign policy in Washington. During this period, the concept of bipartisanship implied a consensus not only between two parties, but also the executive and legislative branches of the government to implement foreign policy. This was seen in the article Bipartisan Ob Objectives for American Foreign Policy, authored by Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's Secretary of State, and Cyrus Vance, who was Secretary during President Carter's administration. In 2010s, there was a wide disagreement between the Republicans and Democrats because the minority party, the Republicans, had been voting as a bloc against major legislation, according to James Farrell's In the Atlantic. And he says in, 20, in 2010, the minority party has the ability to discipline its ranks so that none join the majority. And this situation in the Congress is unprecedented, according to uh, Fellows. He sees this inability to have bipartisanship as evidence of a structural failure of American government. Advisor to President Obama, Rahm Emanuel, said the period from 2008 to 2010 was marked by extreme nonpartisanship, and it came from the Republican Party. This extreme nonpartisanship described was evidence of what we would see with the takeover of the Republican Party by the Tea Party and then the 2016 election of Trump to president. Many people in America did not see the actions being taken in the Republican Party. And in 2010, when the Republicans gained a sizable gain in the House and the Senate, who were a lot Tea Party uh, members, we saw the rise of the Republican Party that exhibits extreme nonpartisan actions today. Remember again the statements, the fallows, of the ability to discipline the ranks of the Republican Party members during the 2010s to a point that bipartisanship could not exist 
And it was it was evidence of a structural failure of American government. So that's what they were contributing to was a structural failure of American government. History can teach us what happens so we can better understand the lack of Republicans willingness to confront Trump and the mega Republicans that have emerged out of this period of history. No wonder we're in the position we are in today with the violence, racism, hatred of any group except white men and women who practice religious extremism. This group of people is responsible for the 300 or more hate laws that exist in many of our states related to abortion, major attacks against Jews, LGBTQ+, persons of color, women, and anyone that does not resemble them. So let me show you something, though. Let's look and identify bipartisan actions from the past. Interestingly, instances often occur when there is shared interest or, or when compromise is necessary to address important issues. Here are some that I've gleaned from different sources or resources. The first example I'll give you is the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This landmark legislation, which aimed to end racial Se uh, segregation and discrimination was supported by both Democrats and Republicans. It was signed into law by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Democrat with significant bipartisan support from members of both parties. Second example, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. This legislation, which aimed to reduce the federal budget deficit, was passed with bipartisan support. It was signed into law by President Bill Clinton, a Democrat, and received support from Republicans in Congress. Third example, the passage of Affordable Care Act, ACA, in 2010. While ACA, also known as Obamacare, was a predominantly Democratic initiative, it did receive some bipartisan input and support during its development. Republican Senator Olympia Snow for example, was involved in crafting certain provisions of the bill, although she ultimately did not vote for the final passage. Example four, the passage of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. This comprehensive tax reform legislation was passed by a Republican-controlled Congress and signed into law by Donald Trump, a Republican. While it was primarily a Republican-led effort, there were some areas of overlap and bipartisan cooperation during its development. Example 5. The American Rescue Plan of 2021. In response to COVID-19 pandemic, Democrats and Republicans collaborated in the American Rescue Plan, a $19 trillion relief package. While it received no Republican votes in Congress, a significant portion of Republican voters, 41% of Republican voters, supported the package, demonstrating a level of bipartisan support from the public. The Biden administration worked with this, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to orchestrate a nationwide vaccine rollout in early 2021. Senator Biden's advisor, Annetta's son told the Washington Post, it doesn't say the Republicans have to be in Congress in order to be bipartisan. Example six, infrastructure 
Invest, Investment and Job Acts of 2023. The U.S. Senate passed a historic bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that aims to address the nation's crumbling infrastructure. The bill received support from both Democrats and Republicans, with 19 Republican senators voting in favor of it. It includes funding for roads, bridges, rail, transit, the electric grid, broadband, internet access, and more. This was a major achievement for both parties, and President Biden fulfilled a key agenda to work across the aisle. And number seven example, May 31st, 2023, the House approved the debt ceiling bill. The Senate approved it the following Monday. The U.S. government would not default on its debt by extending borrowing cap. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarty, a Republican from California, made the case for the deal they had to negotiate to their respective parties. The legislation accomplished much for both Biden and McCarty. Biden can point to the deal that at least temporarily frees him from the headache of the debt ceiling while starving off Republican demands for steep cuts to domestic spending. McCarty gets a deal that curtails uh, federal spending and increases some work requirements on federal aid programs such as food stamps. Biden said after the passage of the bill, passing this Budget agreement was critical. The stakes are could not have been higher. Now we we do have to be aware that these instances were uh, were where Democrats and Republicans worked together to accomplish significant federal uh, government actions that would affect that would be affected by the level of bipartisan cooperation, which can oftentimes be dependent on specific issues like the debt issue. And it also can depend on political climate. So you can see in some of the examples I've given you where um, there was a very clear uh, period in the uh, that the, uh, there was not support from the Republican voters. And we know they've been disciplined uh, in their party because of the mega Republicans that control it. Now, even the Supreme Court of the United States is making decisions that appear bipartisan. This is kind of a shock. Um, but I personally think, um, having studied the Supreme Court for a number of years, because I had a, uh, I have a major in government and sociology and history in my undergraduate degrees. So uh, I've always been interested in, but I think uh, uh, Judge Roberts is not pleased with what's being said about his court. So I think he's taking some actions. He gets things shifted. And sometimes we can't tell what he's going to do um, and when he decides to do that. But these are two very important uh, decisions. The first important decision by the Supreme Court is described by the League of Women Voters of the United States on Friday, June 8, 2023, at 4.01 p.m. Alabama's current congressional map packs Black residents who comprise roughly 27% of the state's voting age population into only one of the state's seven congressional 
districts, thereby diluting their voting power. Plaintiffs, which included Alabama voters and voting rights organizations, sued under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting. A three-judge district court ordered Alabama to redraw the map with a second major black district, and Alabama appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Before the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the case in October of 2022, the League of Women Voters of the United States, the League of Women Voters of Alabama, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Stand Up Mobile submitted a brief that emphasized the community of interest that exists between Black residents in Mobile and the Black Belt, which relates directly to the need for a second major Black congressional district in Alabama. While the Supreme Court put the lower court's decision on hold, allowing the illegal maps to remain through the 2022 midterms, our view prevailed in the court's final decision. Yesterday's ruling will have impacted beyond Alabama, including in Louisiana, where a court found the state's congressional map in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because it packs the state, the Alabama state's Black residents who um, comprise one-third of the population into one of us of the state's um, seven congressional districts. Now, Louisiana is trying to do the same thing, and this decision will affect them too. The United States Supreme Court upheld a ruling ordering Alabama to draw a second major Black congressional district. This ruling pre preserves the power of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to root out racial discrimination in redistricting. In a landmark victory for democracy and fair maps, the Supreme Court decision in Allen versus Milligan, which was formerly Merle versus Milligan, rejected Alabama's argument that redistricting should be race blind and instead affirmed that Section 2 can continue to challenge maps that prevent uh, communities of color from electing candidates of their choice. This victory stems from the hard work of advocates and organizers, including the League and our partners in Alabama and across the U.S. But even as we celebrate, we know that we must stay vigilant because more fights are ahead and we need to be ready. Today, the Supreme Court affirmed the rights of Black voters in Alabama to elect the leaders of their choice. We are pleased that we are one step closer to finally achieving equal representation in our state, said Kathy Jones, president of the League of Women Voters of Alabama. There's a second message for the League of Women Voters uh, also in Texas. On Saturday, on June 24th at 8.41 a.m., yesterday the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that Texas and Louisiana do not have legal right known as standing to challenge a Biden administration policy that prioritizes certain groups of an unauthorized immigrants for arrest and deportation. And this is uh, this was reported 
uh, in the Supreme Court's uh, blog. I think what's interesting about this, because we're shifting from voters in Alabama to uh, to immigration issues in Texas and uh, Louisiana. And living in Texas, I'm delighted with this decision. Um, the policy stated that immigration of officials should prioritize the apprehension and deportation of, of, of three specific groups of people, suspended terrorists, suspected terrorists, excuse me, non-citizens who have committed crimes and those caught recently at the border. Texas and Louisiana sued in federal court to change the policy, but the Supreme Court ruled eight to one with Justice Samuel Alto as this lone dissenter that the states have no standing in the matter. In a longer article entitled Texas and Louisiana Lack Right to Challenge Biden uh, Immigration Policy, Court Rules, by Amy Howe on, on June 23rd, 2023 at 1.03 p.m. This is a summary of the major points that Amy Howe brings out. And I encourage you to read the entire case because it's really uh, got some detail that's very important. This is the summary. The policy at the center of the case, United States versus Texas, was outlined in September 2021 memorandum by Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. The um, memorandum explains that because the Department of Homeland Security does not have the resources to apprehend and deport all of more than 11 million non-citizens, could be subjected uh, to deportation. Immigration officials should prioritize the apprehend ap, uh, the uh, should prioritize getting and and the deportation of three specific groups, which I've talked about already: suspected terrorists, non-citizens who've committed crimes, and those caught recently at the border. In the decision, and we'll see it in a moment, it's very interesting what they did, but they're saying in this in this uh, decision, Texas and Louisiana went to federal court in Texas to challenge the policy. U.S. District Judge Rue Tipton agreed that the policy violates federal law and vacates its nationwide. The Biden administration then came to the Supreme Court to consider the dispute. The justices had agreed to review three separate questions, but in the end, the justices reached only the first question, whether Texas and Louisiana had the standing to bring their lawsuits. In his 14-page opinion for the majority, Kavanaugh framed the dispute as an effort by two states to obtain a court order that would require DHS to alter its arrest policies so that the department arrests more non-citizens. He says, though, but there is no history of courts ordering the executive branch to change its arrest or prosecution policies so that the executive branch makes more arrests or initiates more prosecutions, Kavanaugh wrote. 
To the contrary, Kavanaugh emphasized, the court in 1973 held that a plaintiff lacking standing to challenge a state's policy of not uh, prosecuting some viol uh, violations of child support law. Moreover, Kavanaugh noted, the Constitution gives the executive branch broad discretion to enforce the laws. And in the immigration context, Kavanaugh observed, it has long been the case that the executive branch has not had sufficient resources to arrest or deport all of the non-citizens covered by the federal immigration laws. As a result, Kavanaugh wrote, the past five presidential administrations have had to make decisions about which immigrants uh, immigration arrest they're, they're going to prioritize. That compli uh, complicated balancing process by the executive branch, Kavanaugh reasoned, leaves courts without meaningful standards for assessing the executive branch's decisions, which has in turn led the Supreme Court to conclude that federal courts are generally not the proper forum for resolving claims that the executive branch should make more arrests or bring more prosecution. And he goes on to give multiple um, other examples and gives a lot of uh, case law uh, to justify his position. So Texas and Louisiana don't get to um, tell uh, the executive branch of the, uh, the United States government, what they're going to do about immigration policy. Now, this article was originally published at uh, How H-O-W-E on the Court, and uh, I think it is excellent, and I want to remind you, it's called United States versus Texas, and I think you may want to look at that. Uh, it was in the Supreme Court uh, blog on June 23rd, 2023 at 1.03 p.m. So I want to conclude this podcast by saying history teaches us what happens, and then we have a chance to learn from our awarenesses how to not support the election of individuals that do not support bipartisanship throughout our country. I'm also struck how citizens of the United States have significant impact when they stand for positions that support our democracy and the democratic process. The branches of our government who represent the people can be held responsible for their actions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hot Topic Bold Talk podcast. Now remember to get in on the conversation, head on over to patreon.com slash Dr. Jacqueline. Bye for now.